All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Your Brain on Science. This week, we're doing a quick journal club episode on a recent exciting article, uh, The Acute Mood Elevating Properties of Microdosed LSD and Healthy Volunteers, a Home-Administered Randomized Controlled Trial by Murphy et al. Yeah, so this was just published as a pre-proof maybe a week or two ago. Um, So naturally, we thought that we would break this down for everyone. Um, If you haven't been following along with your brain on science, you should go back and refer to our episode on microdosing, which mm, I think was uh, our like last episode of last season, Mm -hmm. um, where we do a comprehensive breakdown of the current literature at the time of that episode. So this episode I'm talking about also included the mention of a so-called white paper, um, which refers to non-published or peer-reviewed findings that are typically sent to the investors of a company uh, that are sponsoring a trial. We discussed how the preliminary findings were interesting and that the data showed was maybe a little bit confusing. Um, And there were reasons for that. So I think you guys should go back and listen to that episode. Yes. So this white paper that was put out You know, it featured some circled graphs, some mismatched axes, numbering, and it just kind of made it difficult to follow the results without any context, even for us as, like, trained scientists. Um, But you can go back, listen to that if you want the full scoop there. But fast forwarding to now, these results are officially published. So now we're getting a little bit more context. And honestly, some great discussion has come out of this paper and added to, you know, the current literature. So I just want to say FYI, some of the authors of this paper have received research funding from MindBio Therapeutics. And they're an Australian company that Um, is aiming to conduct further work in psychedelic microdosing and that includes this study so just keep that in mind when we're uh, looking at some of these results so Zarmin let's break it down all right all right let's break it down so first things first let's talk about the rationale and the hypothesis so we're all familiar with microdosing right microdosing has been anecdotally linked to a ton of things things like increased productivity, increased creativity, mood. Um, And there's some preclinical evidence for plasticity following some psychedelics. Um, Now there's a lot of debate about, you know, if maybe these doses were not microdoses, maybe they were like actual doses. Um, So the, the research here is a little bit mixed. And with all that being said, little research really has been able to show that microdosing is more than a placebo, right? We just haven't really seen that yet. And the goal of this study is to assess the potential therapeutic effects of microdosing LSD um, in a naturalistic environment, meaning a place where the participant is going to go about their daily life. There's going to be, you know, minimal disruption in how an individual would spend their time. Um, And it's important to note that this study was done in healthy participants with absolutely no underlying mental health conditions. It was, this was like a big um, exclusionary criteria. And so this was healthy participants um, in a naturalistic environment. So this is pretty different, right, from what we've been seeing. Yeah, that's one of the cool things about this study, I think, is that 
one, it's with LSD. Not a lot of clinical studies are with LSD right now. They're all focused on psilocybin, DMT, MDMA, right? So yeah. kind of nice to see an LSD study. Um, and also, yeah, what you said about the naturalistic environment, this is, you know, getting to that set and setting of like, is them, is people administering it to themselves at home going to produce different safety results, you know, because this is just a safety efficacy healthy participant trial, but, and we'll get into kind of those results in a little bit, but it's just, it's cool. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so let's briefly touch on the methods since you mentioned the healthy participants thing. Um, this trial is a randomized control trial, and that just means that the users are just randomly assigned to either the LSD or placebo control groups. And these participants after this random assignment were either given a 10 microgram dose that's microgram yeah <laughs> so the average like recreational dose of lc is between 200 and 100 micrograms so that's you know definitely very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and it's just diluted in water or the inactive placebo which is just water alone uh so and that's something that wasn't clear earlier with their like white paper so good to know <laughs> um and the first dose was given in a clinical setting followed by 13 doses at the participants home every 3 days for 6 weeks and they kind of verified this dosing schedule with self-recorded videos um and like check-ins and then um, delivered these pre-post intervention questionnaires and cognitive tasks at baseline, which was a week before the first dose, and a final visit six weeks later, which would be about two days after the last dose. So um, that is kind of like the, the meat of it, like, you know, the pre-post intervention questionnaires are important for some of the data we're going to talk about later. Um, they not only did that, they did a variety of other questionnaires. Expectancy questionnaires were administered on the treatment visit um, with a matching retrospective questionnaire at the final visit. They also looked at adverse events, blinding data, and a daily um, visual analog scale measure was collected um, and sent to participants by text message every night. Um, so this is kind of keeping up with just how they're feeling and like on the, the post days and the dosing days. Um, the way that they measure blinding was interesting. And I had to like, actually like kind of read into like their like scores when I was looking at the, the data. Did you find that to be interesting? Like how they. For sure. Yeah. Why don't you talk about what they did? I thought it was, it was, I haven't seen this before. I don't yeah. Know. Like yeah. this way. Yeah. So they measure blinding through like a categorical guess of placebo, don't know, or LSD. Um, and it's like a negative one, zero or plus one mm-hmm. numerical um, thing. And then they make a blinding index, which they call BBI. And I, this isn't just for this study, but I just hate acronyms that are other things. Can you like pick something else? <laughs> it's what it's an acronym for is also so funny. I know. Um, <laughs> that's just like another thing. But so so they compute this uh, blinding index, which um, is the bang blinding index, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I just, I can't. I, oh, I can't love say it. it with a straight face. Okay. Um, and so they do this as well as a continuous uh, VAS rating of their confidence from definitely placebo to definitely LSD. Mm-hmm. And that ranges from negative 50 to plus 50 with zero being like, you don't know. And I'm just like curious 
why like pick those numbers is that like a standard thing or like I don't actually know. I feel like these numbers might have been for their analyses, their specific. I I don't know honestly. Just I don't making it easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure if this is like standard. Um, I feel like I haven't seen this before, so I don't think I know enough to say anything about it. Yeah, like I've seen a normalized like response, but not with like this yeah. negative positive. So I don't know. Yeah. I liked it. I didn't hate it. Um, but yeah. So they also do like a hundred other questionnaires to look at aspects of the experience which some of them they they say they're just going to report on later so um we're not going to get like I'm not going to list them all if you want to see what they did you can check out our blog post on psychedelicbrainscience.com yeah they range from you know like psychopathology scales to emotions battery scales um and some cognitive battery tests because you know a lot of people make the claims that there's uh significant improvements in cognition and various things like that so these scales uh sort of range the whole gamut I don't know if that was the right word (laughs) (laughs) but um I know that we've touched on this before um but for those of you that might not have listened to other journal club episodes I want to make sure that we covered this past this VAS scale that Elena is talking about um so this type of survey is a form of a visual analog scale. That's why we're calling it the VAS, in which participants uh, can rate their subjective experiences with things like pain, anxiety, anger, creativity, and so on and so forth. Um, in the case of this study, the VAS ratings are less than usual, so negative 50, to more than usual, up to positive 50, um, with usual uh, being zero as the middle point. So that's like quite a spread, right? Like minus 50 to plus 50, I feel like is quite a spread. Data were analyzed using the categorical variable day. Um, so day was the categorical variable, right? And there were three levels, um, the dose day, and then the two subsequent non-dose days. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was repeated 14 times throughout the trial. So now that's getting a little specific, um, but just keep that in mind when we're looking at the results. Yeah, I just think it's important to like bring that up because when we're looking at the graphs, like if you are looking at the paper um, and you see the the VOS rating scores, you have dose, post one, post two, but those are standard error. I think standard error is the mean, um, but those are yeah. responses that are grouped together from those 14 days. So that's not just, you know, dose day one, post dose one post dose two that's like all 14 days yeah so i don't know i just wanted to make sure people no know. definitely yeah a good point um yeah so of <laughs> course a clinical trial wouldn't be complete without information on demographics and adverse events so the study here all male participants and i will complain about that towards the end um with a mean <laughs> age of about 36 years old Majority educated above high school, little ethnic diversity, um, but this study was recruited in mostly New Zealand or European um, like regions, so not surprising. Uh, yeah. And then there's overall good compliance with the study. There's a small number of missed doses, calls, dropouts, so um, not bad. And yeah. there was no severe adverse events. Most of the adverse events included jitteriness and anxiety. And the jittery group um, was 32% in the LSD group and only 7% in the placebo group and was uh, shown to be statistically significant in their results. So um, that's something that we also noted 
in the white papers that they kind of just circled the like good positive aspects, but not like things like jitteriness. So um, I'm glad that this was reported here um, in yeah. the publication. Um, what was really interesting, and I feel like uh, not reported on very often, is that following some adverse event reports of like a disruptive overstimulation, uh, the protocol was actually amended to include a process for dose titration for some participants um, that had increased anxiety. And four participants actually ended up dropping out of the study due to this overstimulation, this really increased anxiety. Um, but they uh, had light support from research staff even after dropping out and had relieved anxiety following. Which is awesome, by yeah, the way. I love that. Like, Elena and I, I think, talk about this all the time. Like, participants are in the study, like, they are not just data points. Like, you need there needs to be support throughout and if people are having bad experiences yeah and and i think the effect of anxiety is interesting in itself because mm-hmm. i wonder like is it just study related anxiety do you think that like it would be more or less versus like because they're just taking it at home well you know interestingly so um my lab we haven't done studies with lsd but with a lot of psychedelics there are you know, acutely when you take a larger dose, I mean, this isn't clearly known about microdoses. When you take a larger dose, there's um, an increase in your stress hormones immediately following the psychedelic administration. So mm-hmm. in- acutely, there's going to be a little like bolus of anxiety that people feel. So I wonder, you know, if at these small doses, like these, these microdoses, this is enough to produce an increase um, in corticosterone, what? No, corticosterone is in rodents. What is it in humans? Cortisol. Cortisol. <laughs> I want, like, I wonder if like these microdoses, um, might be producing that increase in cortisol, and that might be why people are having anxiety. Or I think your idea has a lot of merit as well. Like, is this related to the setting that they're in? Like, maybe if they were. Um, they felt like they were around people that can offer them immediate support. Maybe that anxiety would have been less. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Definitely a very interesting, an interesting thing to see. And it's really great that this was also emphasized, right? Like this is something Mm -hmm. that we need to think about and we need to talk about. So I think it's really important what you said about like, you know, the, the stress hormone situation, because I wonder too, if like dose matters, right? Because, you know, different dose, different receptor occupancy, different effects on the system. Um, so I wonder if maybe like a smaller microdose is hitting something that's producing this stress effect, but maybe not producing some of those like euphoric effects that would outweigh the stress of the experience, you know? Like, yeah. it's something to think about. Let's do, someone do a study. No, yeah, so, and that could be done pretty easily. Like, we could even do that. All right, maybe I should talk to, to Matt. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the unblinding and expectancy? Let's get right into that. So another thing about um, this study that Elena and I actually thought was very well done um, is the testing for the unblinding and the expectancy. Because you guys know we talk about expect this expectancy effect with microdosing so much because it's so, so, so relevant, right? Like we usually only see positive results with microdosing if the individuals are expecting it or have some sort of like you know, preconceived notion that this is going to work. So finally, there, you know, this study that talks about this expectancy effect and actually like tests for it very, very, I think in a 
great way. So let's talk, let's talk about it. So the placebo group was effectively blinded. However, the LSD group was partially unblinded. And this sort of happened throughout the course of the study. They were able to sort of guess what drug that they had, had gotten. Um, some of the study team, though, was unblinded throughout the trial. Um, but they seemed to correct this after 30 participants were unblinded to the study team. This is an interesting thing that we'll talk about um, when we get to the end and we talk about the limitations. So keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but now why don't we talk a little bit about the main results? So what they found was that expectancy played a significant role in measures of energy, happy, uh, like happiness and connectedness. Um, so participants in the LSD group rated a greater belief that microdosing was going to cause had caused a positive change in certain me measures after the intervention, right? So this was uh, like what, like meditative being like openness, creativity, feeling well. Um, and this was significantly more uh, than those people in the placebo group did. Um, and this belief exceeded their expectancy uh, of change from pre-intervention. So post-intervention, um, they had a greater belief that this microdose had done something greater than they had pre-intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk about a, a really, really great figure that they have here. Um, and I believe that this was figure four, right? Um, where they show us what was expected and what was actually experienced by the participant. Um, and this, I think, I'm very happy that they, <laughs> that there's a graph like this that exists because now we have a visual comparison of what the participants expected was going to happen based um, on all of these different scales. So I'll read some of them to you guys. Um, feeling calm, uh, cognitive changes, creativity, connectedness, happy, focused, energy, so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we have expected and then experienced scores, interestingly. Um, and then we find that the effects of energy, of being connected, creative, happy, and well were driven by slight increases on those dosing days, while the effects of things like anger, and irritability appear to be driven by slight decreases on the dosing days. Um, but these return, uh, these return to normal ratings um, on following non-dosing days. Uh, and there's similar effects for sad, stressed, and tired. Um, and most of these effects were acute and did not last uh, for mo more than the dosing day itself. Yeah, I really did like that graph. I yeah. or like that set of graphs and the axes all match. I could easily read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was all like in increments of five. We love that. Um, and I did think it was like interesting about, you know, kind of you can see in the placebo versus the LSD groups, like how for connected, for example, they both kind of start off with like, not really expecting much like, yeah, whatever. And then mm. you can kind of see the crisscross of like the people who got LSD had this like experience and then people in the placebo kind of went down a little bit. So I just like, yeah. I like looking at like how the trajectories kind of go. Um, mm -hmm. But um, one thing that they also did that was super cool um, is they do an analysis of the blinding, right? So they have all this blinding mm -hmm. data. So what do we do with it? Um, but what they did was uh, they looked at those who weren't sure of their doses and looked at some of these um, stronger like effects, like you mentioned, the effect of energy and like wellness and they wanted to see if even if somebody wasn't sure if they actually got LC or not, if um, they still had this significant effect. And they found um, that the effects of LC on energy and this energetic, like, 
whatever feeling that they get after this microdose was more um, pronounced. Like, so even though they didn't know what they got, they still felt energetic, which leads it to be potentially not a placebo effect. And that's something that I thought was really cool and consistent actually across other studies as well. So there's been other clinical trials that have found this um, LC increase in energy and um, that it's, it's been consistent, which cool. is super cool. Right. And cause you know, Elena and I will break down these microdosing results for you, but this is a result that really has, you know, like held up throughout studies. And this, I think paper did a really great job of making it clear, right. That expectancy versus actual effect. And again, this is something that's, that's held up. So really mm-hmm. thank you for pointing that out. Really great. I think result. There, this study really does have some really interesting results, and I think this just lends to show that like we need more studies. Like even if it seems repetitive, like this is we can see what holds up across different people mm-hmm. doing these studies and like different ways of running them, and and we still are seeing some of the same effects, and we're learning new things. So, you know, just nerding out right now. It's fine. <laughs> but um, another yeah. thing that gets to the set and setting is that participants felt less creative and energetic in their first dose at the laboratory environment than the doses in their natural environments. So that was just like a fun little tidbit that they also were able to test. Which follows, right? And like also awesome that they did that because let's now let's maybe let's for like two seconds step out of the microdosing world the all these clinical trials with psychedelics and different types of you know psychedelic assisted psychotherapies it's all happening in a in a clinical setting like Mm -hmm. granted they try to make the rooms as nice and comfy as soft as possible with pictures and whatever there's still you know elements of the room that are going to make it feel more clinical like simply having like two individuals like hanging out you know in like a more like formal setting is going to put you less at ease, right? You're not in your own home. You're not in the naturalistic environment. So I think interesting that someone looked at this with, with microdosing, like, is there an effect on something even like microdosing and what did they find that? Yeah, there was. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. And so that, you know, uh, that was cool. And I guess what's the main takeaway here, right? Is the, there's an increase in the energy and that despite some mood changes acutely, like on the dosing day, uh, nothing else really happened. And it wasn't continuous, uh, yeah. which is kind of what it's what me and you expect, yeah. <laughs> but not quite uh, what the hypothesis was for, you know, these people who are running these microdosing studies. Yeah, for sure. But um, I think otherwise, you know, a really, I think well done study. Um, and I think the results are reported great. Um, very similar results across the studies that we have now. That energy result is really interesting. And I think the way that they do their expectancy um, analyses were really, really great too. Mm-hmm. Um, so wrapping that up, do you want to talk about some of the issues or limitations that <laughs> we definitely need to talk about? Um, oh, yes. like Things like their participants and, and other stuff. Elena, why don't you kick us off? Oh, I'd love to. Um, So they literally blatantly say that they found sex differences in previous studies, but they wanted to only study males to simplify their analysis. So first of all, (laughs) you literally are just not including a whole large subset of the population in your study because it makes things harder for you. Not cool. 
Um, the, the, yeah, and also I don't think this is, and you know, we mean harder in the sense that like, it's physically you're, it's not going to be more expensive. Like it's, you're not going to be more expensive and to have more participants. No, right. But like, if they were just to split the number of like males and females down the middle, like, and have the same amount of oh, participants, yeah, yeah. yeah, like there, it like, there's no difference in money. Like, it's not that it's cheaper for them. There isn't, you know, like reasons other than the analysis, like now that they think that they don't have to take it's, Well, it's another confounding factor. It's another variable that they have. Right, to but there are also like EEG paradigms analyses that you can use that like the menstrual cycle does not confound. Like I do EEG and this was interesting to me. I hated yeah. that they said this. Yeah. Because yeah. so the, the finding of a sex difference should prompt for inclusion in the study to further elucidate the potential differences in the response to psychedelics, not the other way around. Like, and I understand, you know, that this is their specific EEG paradigm that they used, um, in their analysis. And you know what, fine. This is maybe this is a for the first study that they've done with their microdose for in microdosing. Um, so, okay. So we could take this maybe as pilot data as the first set of participants, um, even though this, you know, isn't because they they've found in previous studies that there are sex differences, just not their previous studies, right? So we as a field should work towards inclusion of all types of people in psychedelic studies, because that is one of the biggest things that come up time and time again, because, you know, in the clinical studies, what do we have? We have a majority of white males coming in who can um, have access to these resources and whatever. So we're so limited as, as it is now, I think like limiting participants because it makes analysis easier and it's not because you can't recruit these participants. I think, I don't know, that doesn't, feel right to me so I that that's something that I feel like should be different for next time yeah I don't really think they have an excuse to exclude women in their study because if sex differences have been reported you should report on them as well and also think about this is being used to further like their use of this as like a whole thing and legalize it and like medicalize it in Australia but it's like what if you have larger dropouts or severe adverse events in women that you won't know about, but you're going to report on it and say like, Oh my gosh, look at our fantastic, awesome results. This is going to help so many people. This is so safe for everybody. It's not safe. It's safe for white men in their late thirties. Yeah. That's what we know. Right. So let's work towards inclusion of all people, all sexes, all genders. Um, okay. But another interesting, um, I think limitation, is it a limitation? Um, I think maybe a confound, something interesting is that this data was collected following the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this was collected April, 2021, April, 2022, um, through, you know, through April, 2022. So this is like, right when the pandemic had happened and we're all sort of dealing with the, the fallout. So there might've been some confounds, right? The anxiety maybe due to ex exacerbations um, in mental health issues and isolation, and not to mention like actually the neural effects that we know that COVID-19 can now have, right? Which is mm -hmm. maybe a side note, but like that's going to have to be a big consideration for a lot of like mental health studies now. So that's just yeah. I think, an interesting point to keep in mind. For sure. Um, yeah, I just thought that was like, 
something I don't really think about, you know, is the time frame that like data is collected. So, well, I mean, I don't think we've ever like lived through like a big enough event for us to, you know, like think about it. Yeah. Like this has impacted the the collective psyche of the world. Like we experience that's like, that's crazy. Right. Like you look at like um, the wars and you can follow sort of like changes across generations in that way right like and it's so so interesting and we're gonna be able to do the same thing with COVID-19 and this is a bit of an aside but my friend um does developmental oh developmental she does like developmental neuroscience and so she follows like babies across their lifetime um and also like the progression um of autism like developmentally and they like have had to make really big notes and like changes like having to do with the COVID-19 pandemic and keeping things in mind and I think I don't know very interesting but that was a, a huge aside and I think a very like something all of us experienced so it was a little weird but anyway yeah. let's keep anyway. going um yeah so besides that I think really the only other there's like two other main like issues I would say or like limitations is that I like reading the supplemental material I felt the study design was like kind of like messy for lack of a better word or like changing continuously and I don't know if that's like common I'm not a clinical researcher maybe will be for a postdoc we'll see but I'm open to learning more about it so please correct me if I'm wrong everybody but like this is just an example right they state that three of the participants received 15 doses instead of 14 um they also note that this like how Zarmin mentioned earlier this unblinding of the study team was done like halfway through yeah um which I didn't really understand like why and then they just randomly like stopped because they were like oh we probably shouldn't unblind our study team (laughs) um and then they this I thought was like kind of ridiculous and made me think about like how often does this actually happen in other clinical trials and maybe we should be more diligent with this but they found that a study participant was let into the trial despite fitting into exclusion criteria but it wasn't discovered until the entire study was completed Hmm, interesting so I'm just like okay maybe we need to like tighten up a little bit or that's interesting I wonder like what the exclusion criterion was I don't think that I looked yeah they didn't say like which specific thing they like yeah Yeah. Um, I mean, I think interesting. So, you know, with clinical trials, you do have sometimes that, you know, as you do the study, you find that um, the maybe the drugs aren't behaving the way that you thought. Maybe it's. Yeah. Like you have to adapt to certain. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like having like some adjustments is normal. And I think that is reflected a little bit in the paper. But there were like, you know, the unblinding halfway through. That's a pretty, I don't know, big one. That seems interesting. so some of this is definitely warranted, but it was, I think, a lot of changing. So that's just why we note it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But any other comments, Armin, we can um, include yeah. here? Yeah. So I think actually, so in, in figure two, um, in the main text, it's actually their main measure of this study, right? The figure two is the big takeaway. Um, and the figure is actually a little bit hard to read. So considering like all the axes are on a different scale. They did not um, take our advice. Yeah. <laughs> Making it seem kind of like there were more or less effects than they're actually present. Um, but interestingly, the other figure of the main text, which shows the expected versus the experience that we just talked about, 
um, shows similar data, but their scales are all the same. And that simplifies the data, you know? Yeah. And- looking at both of them, it's like, why didn't you do it for both? I don't know. Yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I wonder if like physically the ticks would look ugly or it was an aesthetic thing. I don't know. But we are fans of having the same axes. If you're looking at things across an, an you know, across a graph, all the, all the plots should be the same. All the sub figures should have, be on the same axis. That's just, I don't know, something that we get drilled into our heads. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But Hey, Uh, whatever. There was also another thing. So they mentioned the range of their effect size. Um, So now effect size is um, a, is it a statistical measure? I think, yeah, I think we can call it a statistical measure. Mm -hmm. So effect size tells us something about how big um, the effect that you're looking at actually was. Um, And it was a pretty large range. And this suggests that, you know, we probably need more participants. I mean, we definitely need more participants. We need more research. Um, A range being large just just tells us that there's a lot of variability. right? And it was like a large range, but in the small effect size. So their effect size was like not very good. And it was ranging throughout their different measures. So obviously more, more research needed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, overall, I think this was an awesome paper. We really enjoyed reading it and, and sort of reviewing it. I think this is a body of work that adds, a, it, which is a very important contribution to the microdosing literature as it stands. And the group reports that the use of at-home LSD in these participants is relatively safe, um, both physiologically and psychologically. So having to do with your body and your mind. Um, But they did note that there might be some increased risk of anxiety and overstimulation associated with, um, you know, microdose LSD. Yeah. And, you know, the data suggests that there is a large blinding and expectancy effect but hey, you know, we're just happy finally that someone know. transparently. So, you know, kind of what me and Zarmin would expect, but we're just happy to see it, you know, in the main text, like right front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish, you know, some more of that analysis, like they show like the big, like experienced versus expectancy, like figure, but there was a lot of other um, analyses that they did that was in the supplemental material. So if you'd like me to send that to you, uh, just shoot us an email. Um, but I do appreciate the explicit recognizing of like the current benefits and safety are untested and that caution, you know, should be taken with repeated use. Yeah, for sure. So great study, I think. Um, good results, interesting results, uh, kind of expected results, right? Um, but I think we need more literature. So I hope studies like this keep coming out. But Thank you guys for sticking with us throughout this. Um, You all have heard now about our Patreon and our YouTube. So please consider subscribing. There's a lot of fun, exclusive content. Elena and I are, um, I don't know, we like to think that we're the funniest people ever. So we have Mm -hmm. a lot of outtakes. We have a lot of other content for you guys. Um, So subscribe and you'll get to see all of that. And very excited for bicycle week coming up Elena. Go. You. <laughs> um, we've got a lot of really cool stuff coming um so that Zarmin mentioned our patreon and our youtube channel so everything will be up and running on bicycle day so please um you know go check that out and you know we're gonna have um 
Leonard Picard on the podcast. We're going to do a 420 episode. Then we're going to talk to a journalist uh, about some stuff with maps. So, you know, just stay tuned and engage with us. And we're really excited. Woohoo! All right. See you guys. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.